Welcome to the Grappling Discourse Podcast. Today, we will be talking about the true Sith Lords of Jiu-Jitsu. But first, I want to update you guys on my running progress. So I have been running now. I was just thinking about 30 minutes ago, kind of preparing for this podcast. And I was like, man, I have been running for almost a year now. It's probably been nine, 10 months since that first one mile run with the guys. And I've been consistently running at least twice a week, usually three times a week. And this past Friday, so a couple of days ago, I hit a huge PR. I was doing the Cooper test. So the Cooper test is a 12 minute run. You try to go as far as you can. And I um, have steadily been getting a PR each time. And I remember the first time I did the Cooper test, I think I got like a 1.71. And then the time before this one, I got up to a 1.93. So I was like, man, I am so close to two miles. Well, I didn't hit two miles this time. I got 1.97, but I got two miles. I just decided to go ahead and finish out um, the two miles. And I did two miles and 12.11. So I am so close to having a sub uh, two mile, um, self 12 minute two mile run, which will be huge. I mean, that's. Uh, Something that definitely will be like a big milestone. Like I always have goals, but there's definitely certain ones that stick out. I remember the first time that I did 30 pull-ups. Um, that was humongous for me. <laughs> I'd always wanted to do it. I'd been stuck at like 25 for a very long time. And then I really trained it. I got on like a pull-up program where I was like doing once a week. I was doing some weighted pull-ups. And then the other times I was doing like a different uh, like rep scheme with just body weight. And I was using different grips to try and get, you know, stronger. And anyways, I remember like hitting 30 pull-ups. I remember the first time I did a hundred push-ups in a row. That also took me a couple months of specifically training for that. And so now that I've been trying to run um, a mile as fast as I can, but the big one the past couple months has been this Cooper's test. And I'd really love to run two miles under 12 minutes. And I think I'm probably a month away. I think if I get... A good month of uh, training in, wake up really recovered one day, feeling good. I think I'm going to be able to smash that. And I probably, man, if I just would have pushed it a little bit harder, I maybe could have done it. But that Cooper's test is so daunting because you know if you're truly going all out, you are going to redline. You are going to get kind of sick to your stomach afterwards. It's going to be very, very difficult. Your mind's going to be telling you to slow down. It's going to be telling you to stop. And so you have to pace the test properly, but at the same time, you got to make sure you give it your all. And it's scary, you know, but I will say this. I have been working out consistently now for three years, like really working out hard at least five days a week, most of the time six days a week with that one rest day. And I'm not talking about jujitsu. I'm talking about like working out, whether some days are more, um, you know, bodybuilder type exercises. Some days might be more cardio based. Some days might be more like Pilates. But regardless, I am working my body out usually five, sometimes six days a week. And since I've been doing that, I can really think of my progress, uh, especially when it comes to my mentality and my ability to do hard things. Because I remember when I first added in the bike, that was the first really difficult cardio um, vascular exercise, like exercise machine that I added in or just routine. 
And I remember doing it like I was doing it once a week and I absolutely hated it. It scared me to death. I was doing it on Fridays and I remember every Friday I'd wake up and just be like, oh no, like not today. And I knew I'd have to do some type of test, whether it was like a Tabata 2010 or maybe even 1020, which still sucked. Um, any of those like 50 cow or maybe like a longer ride where it's like 100 cows are over. And I would always try to get out of it. Like I would think to myself like, man, like you don't have to do this today. You've trained jujitsu three or four days in a row. You don't need to push yourself this hard. And I never skipped, never one time, but I just remember having those thoughts and I would only do that. So I would do that and then I would go do some weights and my cardio routine has just really skyrocketed ever since then. It's like I did that for four, five, six months and then I've added things slowly and slowly and now the bike's not that big a deal. If you told me to like just do one twenty ten, like yeah, it kind of sucks, but it's not that bad. I can definitely rise up and really crush that challenge. And now, like to me, the hardest things are these like run tests. Whether I'm trying to do a mile as fast as I can, this Cooper's test 12 minutes, my heart rate gets over 200. Um, and the bike, I never get anywhere near. Now, the bike is more of like lactic uh, acid threshold. And, you know, it is a little bit different. It does attack your system a little bit differently. But. There's something about those just all out redline and getting that heart rate as high as you can. It just, man, there's been a couple times after some of these runs, I'm just jacked up. Like I am messed up for like 20, 30 minutes where my heart rate, like is just through the roof and you know, I'm, I'm definitely feeling it. And, uh, that's now kind of my new thing is like my mental thought, like when I'm running that 12 minutes, like, okay, we're starting off this pace, trying to keep it, trying to keep it and slowly increasing slowly. And especially on that last third of the race, those last three minutes, um, I guess that'd be a quarter. The last quarter of the race, those last three minutes are always just a nightmare, but I can definitely say that, uh, it's definitely getting me mentally stronger. And so I encourage you guys to find ways once a week, just start off with once a week where you make yourself really uncomfortable. Could be the ice bath, could be a cold shower, could be, you know, you're working on your run, you're just challenge yourself and start off slow and you'll be shocked in two, three, four years. I never thought at this age, like I've never been better physically. Like my body feels absolutely incredible, no injuries. I, my hips feel better than ever. I'm constantly tinkering, experimenting, challenging myself, and it's definitely paying off. But today, I want to talk about the jiu-jitsu scene. We've been talking about professional like promotions and everything, but now I want to look at just the landscape of 2024 of jiu-jitsu teams because I think for the past three, four, five years, everybody has been obsessed with the no-gi scene, right? Like We've really seen the rise of no-gi, especially since COVID. Like post-COVID, everything has been no-gi. It started with Submission Underground really being the only, it was like the first sporting event back. And I remember during that time, like COVID, half the country was still shut down. And somehow Chel Sonnen was running a jiu-jitsu promotion out of Oregon one of the most liberal states and one of the states that had uh, you know, some of the strictest COVID laws and somehow he was putting on a combat show and then the UFC came back but 
Submission Underground, most of the matches, and then towards the end, it was all no-gi. Every single match was no-gi. We're seeing more and more professional events. It's all no-gi. Very rarely now, for every 10 professional shows, one might be gi. And there is no sign of that changing anytime soon. And so everyone has been talking about who? The no-gi squads. They've been talking about New Wave. It was the Dan Hair Death Squad. Then they split and it was New Wave, B Team, even 10th Planet to a degree. You know, 10th Planet's always had a bit of, uh, you know, share of the limelight purely because of Joe Rogan. Obviously, 10th Planet is very popular. 100 plus schools worldwide. Some successful competitors. Um, very successful team, but yeah, definitely hasn't had the success of B Team or New Wave. But when you talk about just pure numbers, if you go to any show, you go to a Naga, you go to like any submission only, or like a, a tournament that uh, favors like sub only, you're going to see Tenth Planet there. And if you talk to ADCC, guarantee their ADCC opens like could not or would not be as successful as successful without Tenth Planet because Tenth Planet guaranteed has the most competitors signed up at these ADCC Open since it's happened. So between those three, but particularly New Wave and B-Team, with Gordon Ryan, Craig Jones, the two biggest social media stars, plus all the rest of the guys on their team. Over at New Wave, you have Donna here. These guys have been on the Joe Rogan podcast. They've been on multiple other super uh, big platforms, and just everybody knows who they are. And for the longest time, everyone thought the bad guys of jiu-jitsu were just the guys that were taking over, the masterminds, the guys that were really pulling the spring, this uh, pulling the strings were John Donner and Gordon Ryan. Particularly like John Donner. Everyone was like, John Donner is this genius. He's got all these up-and-coming guys. He's going to dominate the scene. He's obviously got Gordon now as the main guy. Marigali comes in. You've got Big Dan, Luke Griffith. Uh, Oliver Taza, and they've got, you know, a handful of other guys, but for the most part, it's like those dudes, right? And everybody's like, man, Big Dan's going to dominate. You've got Gordon right now, who's pound for pound the best guy. Marigali's coming over, who's the best gi guy. Then you've got Big Dan, who everyone thinks is a uh, future ADCC champion. Luke Griffith, also a possible future ADCC champion. I think most people are kind of down on Oliver Taza. They've kind of think he's kind of hit his peak where he's a elite level grappler. He's a guy that's going to be at ADCC for probably the next ten years. Uh, the way he like works and prepares and everything, like he's an elite level guy. But I don't think anybody sees that out of him anymore. Um, and so they're really thinking it's like Gordon Marigali, Big Dan, and Luke Griffith. But I got to tell you, 2024, the way the year has started, and especially after this past weekend. And what's really happened over the past year, people need to realize that it's not New Wave. New Wave, it's not New Wave, it's not 10th Planet, it's not uh, B Team, it's not any other team. Crazy Baja, every other team. Atos, Atos has fallen probably more than anybody in my mind. I remember when Atos, it was kind of like Atos versus New Wave was the thing. It's not that anymore. AOJ, Guy Mendez and Hoffa Mendez, they are the true Sith Lords of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, or just the grappling community, right? Their Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school, Art of Jiu-Jitsu, has taken over. 
And it's scary how much talent they have. And what should scare the other teams even more, just competitors even more, is all the young talent they still have coming up the ranks. Every single age group. If you look from their eight-year-olds on up to their senior team members that are competing at the adult level, like black belt level, they have at every weight class just champions. And I should say at every age they have champions. And so four, five, six years ago, nobody was really talking about AOJ because nobody was too concerned with the kids' scene. But Hoffman and Guy Mendez were smart. They started off and built the best kids program. They let Atos take the adult division. And they realized, look, working with adults and getting adults bought in to your program is very, very difficult. It's just very, very difficult. You get a 22-year-old on up coming in. And no matter how much talent they have, no matter what belt rank they are, like no matter where they're coming, like it's very difficult to get them in and to buy into what you're doing. But kids, on the other hand, much more programmable. And so they've got these kids and they're treating them like professional athletes. And I remember when Colabate was dominating. This is a few years ago. And I remember when Colabate was dominating. This is right before he won the ADCC trials. I believe it was right before this. He went to a Naga. It was like a local term. I think it was a Naga. And he competed at the Blue Belt Division, the men's Blue Belt Division. And he absolutely obliterated his opponents. It literally wasn't competitive. I think he also did an IBJJF at Blue Belt. And again, just absolutely obliterated everyone. And people were complaining. They were like, I just don't understand. Why is this kid, Colabate, doing the Blue Belts? Like, he is one of the most talented guys in the world. He needs to be competing at Black Belt. I think he had done the WNO Championships. Remember when he beat Gio Martinez um, in that first round matchup? Um, everybody was expecting it to be Gio versus Mikey in the second round at the 145-pound weight division. Gio ended up losing to Colabate, who was a 15-year-old blue belt. And Mikey ended up losing to Gabriel Souza, guard past north-south choked. And everyone was just shocked. You know, because WNO definitely wanted the rematch after the, the beef. Um, they, they thought it would be really good for their show, but that's not what we saw. We saw 15-year-old Blue Belt beat one of the best black belts in the world at 145. I mean, Gio's an absolute stud, and Colabate looked absolutely incredible. And then he goes out, and he... Uh, is competing against blue belts. And people are like, whoa, 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 like, what's the deal with this? And I remember Guy making a, I'm pretty sure it's Guy who runs the Mendez Bros page, but I remember him making a post that I've thought a lot about since then. And so again, this is a few years ago, three, four years ago. And uh, I remember him writing a post that was essentially just like, hey, our standard for our kids and our standards for our blue belts are very, very high. We treat these guys like Cole is a professional. He trains like a professional. He lives like a professional. We treat him like a professional. And if other schools don't have the same standards as us, that's on them. Cole is still a blue belt to us like in, in his progress. Cole is going to be a champion one day. And we get it. People's feelings are hurt. But you should really look in the mirror. Essentially, you should look in the mirror at your preparation and your standards for your team. And we don't see anything wrong with having incredibly high standards for our lower belts. And again, 
thought a lot about that because it's become the cornerstone of their team. They're very work in the darkness, you know. They're not they don't have like huge social media presence. They never start trash with other teams. They um they're just very professional, you know. They're they're kind of like the rich uh millionaires, you know, that don't talk about like being the rich millionaires. They just make posts after they win. Their kids go out and now they're adults. And this is why I'm talking about them as 2024. They are the true Sith Lords because their dominance of jujitsu has just begun. Their team right now is absolutely terrifying. And the fact is that they have so many people. Like if you just look at New Wave, they only have a handful of people like competing at the top level. And I think even some of those guys like Big Dan has been very questionable. He's very up and down in his performances. Luke Griffith, the same thing. At times, they look like world beaters. At times, um, you know, they, they lose matches. Um, and especially like Big Dan has had some performance that really just make you like, like is he a future ADCC champion? Is he going to be a guy that can win the big-time matches at the right time? Because it seems like he just can't win the big one. If you think about his loss to, to Kyle Bame at the North American trials, his European trials loss to um, the Polish gentleman, I can't remember his name now, and he just lost last weekend um, at Karate Combat. And it was a super cool event. I actually loved the Karate Combat setup. They had a pit, which I think should really be explored. I, I loved watching those matches. But anyways, Luke Griffith ended up losing to Wagner Rocha, and Max Jimenez ended up beating... Um, Big Dan. And so again, both those guys still really young. They're both purple belts for a reason. I think Luke might be a brown belt, but I know Big Dan's a purple belt. So much like Colabate, like Donahue still sees a lot of growth in those guys. And they could possibly be ADCC champions one day. But I just watch the AOJ guys and the performances that they put on compared to the new wave, like guys outside of Gordon and Marigali. Because even Bodani sometimes, I think, doesn't have like ADCC. I think that was just his weekend. I think if we ran back ADCC, there's a really good chance that Bodani doesn't win that division. You know, I think he, unlike like Gordon, I think if we ran that 10 times, Gordon wins 10 out of 10. He wins the super fight against Galvao 10 times out of 10, and he wins the heavyweight division 10 times out of 10. But I think Bodani is probably more like 3 out of 10. I definitely think that, again, like that division was really wide open. I definitely don't, like, I definitely see him as the favorite going into this upcoming ADCC. But at the same time, I definitely think he's beatable. And I think uh, it's probably more like, again, like a 3 to 10. Like his odds are, you know, we run ADCC 10 times right now, he's probably winning three times. AOJ guys. The way they're beating people and dominating people, I mean, it looks like they have a bunch of Gordon Ryans. What Diego Pato did this weekend, the way that he beat one of the best grapplers, and we're talking about Dante Leon. Dante Leon, third place at ADCC uh, Championships at 168 pounds. Pato competes at 145. Pato made the move to AOJ, what, maybe a year and a half ago? And ever since then, he has just completely taken over. He is by far the best under 155-pound grappler in the world. 
I cannot think of another grappler under 155 that that can beat Pot. Like I don't think anybody can hang with him. Dominated Baby Shark. Dominated Baby Shark in their WNO match. Face Dante Leon. Dominates Dante Leon. Insane leg lock entry into that outside heel hook. And that outside heel hook was probably the best outside heel hook I've ever seen. From the entry to the finishing mechanics and against the opponent that, um, you know, as Dante Leon, like it was just absolutely phenomenal. Tynan Dolphra beating Oliver Taza. So it's his second no-gi match. And I look, I'm not one of those guys. I don't think it's that impressive when a gi guy comes over to no-gi. These guys have trained no-gi for a very long time. Tynan's been training forever. He is pound for pound, in my opinion, the best gi grappler in the world. It makes sense. He's going to be an elite. I mean, he's going to be a top five no-gi grappler pretty much right away. Especially if you just watch Tynan, like the way that he trains and also coming out of AOJ, you know the dude's going to be prepared. But he absolutely destroyed Oliver Taza. It wasn't competitive at all. And it's got you wondering, like, again, performance, a very Gordon Ryan-esque performance. And just his opponent did not look at his level at all. His opponent was never in the game. His opponent never really had any offensive movements and was just trying to survive. Gordon Ryan. Like, that's what Gordon does to the best guys. Tynan is already doing They just did that to Oliver Taza, who's, one of the 16 best under 168-pound grapplers in the world. Now, Tynan has a lot more talent at that weight division. Like, there's a lot of guys, um, you know, particularly the Rutolos and Miki Galval, that everybody want to see him go against. Like, that's kind of the top of the top. Dante Leon, PJ Barch, those guys are also right there. Andrew Tackett. But at the same time, I got to think, like, me, it's got to be like a Mika. Just think about the 60, uh, or excuse me, the 77 kilogram division coming at ADC. It's got to be the favorites, right? Mika Galval, Kate Rutolo, and Tynan Dolphra. And if you asked me right now to put money on an athlete to win that, I think I might go Tynan Dolphra because he's got the Sith Lords behind him. He has two geniuses game planning and running. Like, they're so far ahead. Everyone talks about Donahue. I honestly think Donahue does not even remotely compare to the genius of Guy and Hoffa Mendez. The way that they build their athletes, the way that they just sat in the darkness. They sat in the darkness and just built their kids program. For years, they did that. And everybody forgot them. Again, everybody's talking about Daniel Death Squad and Autos and Alliance and all these schools, right? And now AOJ has taken over. And the crazy thing is, is they just finished building a second location. So they're expanding. Their empire in California is expanding. Um, and it just it makes me think like, man, like in five years, who's going to be able, especially team-wise, be able to compete with them? And just looking at this upcoming ADCC, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, Pato and Tynan like working at all cylinders, and obviously there's still a couple, especially big guys away. But maybe the second best gi player in the world, and definitely a top three or four right now, you know, it's probably Marigali's probably probably one. I'm just talking about like absolutes, pound for pound. Tynan's the best. I really do believe that. But then. 
heavyweight, like who's going to win an absolute championship. You've got obviously Nicholas Marigali, who dominated the IBJJF Grand Prix, looked incredible. Victor Hugo, but Gutenberg Pereira, that's a guy that everybody should keep their eye on because Gutenberg just went to AOJ, I think maybe four, five, six months ago. Competed at Euros, Gi Euros this uh, this weekend, and absolutely dominated. Gold weight, gold absolute. He's a guy that I think um, he's going to be the next guy. They're going to have him win a Gi division, and then they're going to have him take the Gi off, and they're going to prepare him for ADCC. And there's more and more of the best guys go over there now, plus the kids. I mean, if you watch their training, because I was like a member of their site, I've constantly followed, because Hoffa's my favorite grappler ever, I've constantly followed the progress of AOJ. I've just seen some of their just random like orange belts rolling. Like, hey, here's like two of our orange belts coming up. They won, like, they won Euros at orange belt. And you watch them roll, and you're like, dude, they're better than... They're better than 95% of adults. I'm talking about any belts. You just watch their technique and the way they... It's just incredible to see the way they can develop their athletes. And then on top of that, the way that they game plan for athletes. Just truly mind-boggling the amount of preparation that especially Guy Mendes puts in you know Hoffa seems like he's more of like a guy that like that you know they go to and he still trains hard with the athletes and everything and um, he still looks kind of like the competitor he keeps guys sharp they go over there and everything but Guy definitely seems to be the guy that really game plans and is really there he's always there mat side at the big events you rarely see Hoffa there um, it's usually Guy Mendes so he's really that head coach and so I really should give a lot of the credit to Yi Mendez. And he's been a big inspiration and in just making me realize how bad of a coach I am at times, you know, because Yi Mendez is truly bought into the mission and the things that he does for his athletes. I mean, nobody else does that. Nobody else. And so I think by, I mean, it's already happening. AOJ is, is the best team in the world. It's not even close. And I think in five years, we're really going to look at the AOJ methods and especially the kids that they're developing five years, three years from now, AOJ is going to be unstoppable. I really do believe that. I think they're going to be unstoppable. I think some of the things they're going to do on the competitive scene is going to be unheard of. And I think we're going to see more and more of just random 15, 16, 17-year-olds coming out to trials and winning or just doing incredibly well from that team. And uh, I'm excited to see it because it's definitely going to take the sport to the next level. But they're going to become the Yankees, much like kind of everybody was like trying to catch a lion. So use the, the, the first major team. Um, it wasn't a lion. It was uh, – who was it back then? There was a long time ago. Anyways – 2000s alliance alliance dominated the world championships they had marcelo cabrinha tons of top studs right well it progressed and especially for three four years it was the danaher death squad everybody's talking about danaher death squad and atos um so those were kind of like the two big teams and everybody was like really talking about that rivalry um but yeah right now aoj's the squad and if you're wanting to, whether it's 10th Planet, New Wave, B Team, whatever, like there's, I think there's some catching up to be done because some things are going to have to change 
if you want to be and and really take their spot as the number one team in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Last thing I want to talk about, guys, just a really quick reminder on training. Because when I talk to athletes, just people at our gym, and they're trying to implement a new skill set into their game. This can be super frustrating, especially if the technique is very foreign to what you do. For instance, right now, um, you guys know I've started teaching again on Mondays and Wednesdays. been teaching a couple weeks now, and the main focus is ADCC trials coming up, so we're really working on ADCC rules um, techniques specifically. When you look at ADCC, a huge part of the ADCC game is the turtle position. You have to be very, very good attacking the turtle, and you have to be very good defending from the turtle. And something I was telling the athletes uh, last week was, look, guys, I have never seen an ADCC run besides maybe this last Gordon Ryan one. When Gordon won the heavyweight division plus went and beat Andre Galval, he was in no danger. Like He absolutely dominated his competitors. But if you look at his prior two runs, he had faced a lot of adversity. And when I think about a lot of, especially just like people winning ADCC trials, you are going to have very close matches. You are going to be put in some danger. You're going to have moments where your opponent almost scores on you or where you're in overtime and you're having to go to a ref's decision. It's just super common. If we just think um, in a couple of of matches I I talked about with them or just brought up with them was if you think about ADCC uh, West Coast trials last year, Andrew, um, or excuse me, William Tackett and um, Andy Varela. That match starts out, Andy Varela is all over William Tackett. Immediately gets him into a front headlock position, gets a really deep anaconda. Some people are like, man, like myself included, was like, man, he might have this. He might finish. William Tackett defends, defends, survives, ends up surviving. But he is all, Andy is all over William Tackett those first three, four, five minutes. But William Tackett survives, 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 points, hits. He ends up pushing the pace. Andy starts to kind of get on, put on the back foot a little bit. William Tackett ends up winning 4-0, but he was in or faced tons of adversity during that match. Joseph Chin versus Oliver Taza. So Joseph Chin ends up winning the European Trials, which was probably the best match of the year last year, no gi. And Oliver Taza had his back. Like it was that match was crazy. If you go back and watch it, Joseph Chin takes Oliver Taza's back before the points start. Oliver escapes. Taza, this is during point uh, the point portion. He ends up taking uh, he ends up taking Joseph Chin back, or almost taking it for a split second. He almost has it. Well, Joseph Chin ends up escaping the position. He takes Oliver Taza's back again and ends up scoring the points and ends up winning ADCC. Gordon Ryan, think back to his first ADCC run where he ended up beating Keenan Cornelius in the finals with that beautiful front headlock uh, choke from the mount position. He ends up getting the sweep with the arm and guillotine, finishes it from the mount position. One of the best finishes in ADCC history. 
But his first match was against Dylan Dennis, and that went to a ref's decision, and it was very, very close. Second round ends up destroying um, and ends up like finishing from the back position. Third match in the semifinals, he goes against Shanji. And they have a very competitive match. And again, it goes to a judge's decision. Fast forward two years to Gordon's second ADCC appearance. Well, he ends up in the semifinals, I think it was semifinals, against Lucas Hulk Barboza. And Lucas Hulk Barboza ends up rear body lock on Gordon from the standing position, hits two or three mat returns, like almost, this is during the points, I almost scores on Gordon a couple of times. Gordon just does a great job defending from the turtle position, building his base, getting uh, and standing back up, but he ends up hitting a beautiful switch into the truck position, and he ends up scoring three points and beating Luke Hulk Barboza. But again, I was like, look, guys, we have to train uh, the turtle position, particularly, especially defensively, because that's where a lot of people, like, you know, if they're almost past your guard, you're going to have to build base back up to turtle. If you get taken down, you're going to have to scramble back to turtle. And so you really need to try and master and really get good at that position if you're going to have success and make deep runs at ADCC formatted tournaments. You've got to be able, oh, you almost took somebody down. Well, if they just concede the takedown and lay on their back, like, they had no chance of winning ADCC anyways. They don't even really want to be there, in my opinion. Somebody that's been training the ADCC world knows, like, look, if you get taken down, you immediately build base back up. Scoring points should be very, very difficult. So that's why the back takes are so popular because people have to show their back. They have to go to turtle to stop points being scored. But turtle, with a lot of our competitors, it's not really a strong suit. And I think most jujitsu people, like, aren't the best at turtle, right? Defensively, they're not the best at, like, scrambling from turtle. Um, there's a lot of wrestlers that have made their living off of like being able to scramble from the turtle position and being able to like Granby and all of that, but it's just not really a jujitsu thing. Um, and while people will do some like fat man roll and they'll have some like counters from there, I won't say that there's like a lot of like elite level turtle players. It's usually MMA fighters and you have to think about the turtle position more like an MMA fight. Uh, then you can't just be, be slow there and just like play super closed turtle and just wait, wait, wait for your opponent to, uh, your opponent to expose himself or go for something that's not there. You really have to create space and you have to be able to create scrambles from the turtle position. That's what the best guys can do, and those are the people that have the most success at ADCC with people that can defend and scramble from the turtle position the best when somebody uh, when their opponent um, gets an advantageous position on them. And so, again, we've been working on some turtle techniques, a lot of like just grambing and how to create space to gramby and when to do roll, like when to gramby versus when to do a front roll. Um, what are some other like when to switch? Why won't knee slides really work? There's just a lot of things we've been talking about. And so, anyways, one of our guys is a purple belt. He came to me, uh, I think it was Thursday. I can't remember. Anyways, the day last week after uh, Wednesday's class. And he was like, man, I was trying to work on the turtle position today, and I just didn't have any success. I just really didn't feel like it went very well. I feel very uncomfortable there. And I kind of asked him, like, hey, like, who are you trying it on, you know? And it just it seemed like he expected too much. 
at white belt, one of the reasons white belt is so fun is because you just have very low expectations, <laughs> especially after you've had, you know, kind of the crap kicked out of you for the first couple of months. You really didn't start to just, okay, I'm here. If I have any success at all, that's a huge plus. If I hit a one move, I'm super happy. But as you get better and better, especially when you get to the purple belt level, you're so used to having success that adding in something you're not good at can be so difficult. And I could just tell that this guy was expecting too much and he wasn't happy with his performance because he didn't hit like double-digit turtle escapes and he wasn't able to create the scrambles that he expected out of himself against his training partners, against guys that maybe he's better than. And I feel like I constantly have to remind people that just having a very small number, just picking like the number three, that's the number I always choose. I'm working on a new game right now. I've been working on that reverse close guard. Um, you guys can see that on B team's channel. They had Owen Jones who won European trials at under 66 kilogram division. He uh, is an absolute stud and it's a position he likes to play a lot. And so I've just been messing around with it. Um, I started doing that last week and I was kind of explaining to him, I was like, look, I'm happy. Like if I hit this twice tonight, I'm going to be super, super happy. Just one good entry. I'm going to be super happy. That's kind of the base. And then as I get better and better over the course of a few months, then yeah, I expect a little bit better results than that. But especially in the beginning, be very kind to yourself. Start with lower level training partners and just do not be afraid to find success against the weakest people at your gym. It's like people think, you know, they get so, uh, they get so good that they're like, man, I can tap this guy 15 times and, you know, in a round, I can literally obliterate this guy. I can do whatever I want to this guy, but they realize that they actually can't that they technically like can't do everything. There are techniques that they're going to struggle with, even against somebody they can tap 15 times. This happens to me all the time. And when I was a competitor and when I was a purple and brown, but it used to make me depressed. Like I would really judge myself. I would be very, very harsh with myself if I you know, couldn't hit this move I was working on on everybody in the gym and it was just like I expected results immediately. Like, man, I'm better than this guy, so why can't I should be able to do whatever I want to? Now I realize that that is not true. And movements that you're not very good at, movements that you're working on, you're not going to have success immediately, even with somebody. Like, I'm a second-degree black belt now. I... I have techniques that I'm going to miss on white belts. Even people that have only been training like six months. I promise you, I'm not going to be able to just do ex like everything I want to do. And especially if you tell me like, hey, hit this move. Hit a go-go plata on this white belt. There's a chance that I don't hit that move. There's a chance that I struggle. And there's a chance I try three or four times and miss every single time. The purple belt me would be besides himself. I'd be like, oh my God, I have gotten worse somehow. This is so embarrassing. I need to drill this a thousand more times. Like, no, no, no. Have patience. Ask yourself questions. Be kind to yourself and ask yourself questions why. Figure out the little things you're doing wrong. And just ask yourself, like, okay, why? I'm, I'm really struggling to clear his arm or, man, like posture control or just clearing the head on my go-go plata. Why am I struggling to clear the head? 
Mm, why is my top layer just whatever, right? I just ask myself small questions now. And I know over the course that that method has proven me and given me great results over the years. And so I have faith in my system. So you need to develop your own scientific method and your own training method that gets you results. And that also keeps you happy, confident, and just really believing and understanding how to get better at a technique. Until next time, guys, I love and appreciate you. Peace.